Hi, everyone. My name's Jennifer, for those of you that I haven't met in person, and I am one of the associate pastors here at White Rock Baptist Church. Today, I get the privilege of preaching our second last sermon in our Psalms series. And if you are thinking to yourself, oh, are we done Psalms already? I was just getting into it. I was enjoying it. Well, then good, because we've left you wanting more. And there are 150 psalms, so we did have to be selective because otherwise we could be doing a psalm every Sunday for the next three years, and that might get a bit tedious. But if you're in a life group that is doing the psalms, you get to carry on looking at five more psalms over the next few weeks. And if you're not in a group but would like to be, I'd be happy to help you with that. And if you'd like to do some study on your own in the psalms, if this has gotten you excited, I've got a couple books to recommend. This one is by Charles Swindoll, Living the Psalms. It's a devotional book. It doesn't go through every single psalm, but it goes through 26 of them. And of course, you can never go wrong with C.S. Lewis on the psalms. And I have this one in my library you could borrow. And if you can get your hands on anything by Eugene Peterson, he's written a couple of books on the psalms. And our study guide is by Eugene Peterson. So I would recommend those if you're wanting to do a little further reading about the psalms. So today we're looking at Psalm 73, and this is one of my favorites because of a talk that I heard when I was in youth group. We had a youth leader who was a very shy, quiet sort of man. He was probably in his mid-40s, um, and he, I don't actually remember his name, uh, but what I remember is this one time that he gave a devotional to our group. It's actually the first and the only time that I remember him speaking but he gave a devotional on this psalm, Psalm 73, and he talked about how he could really relate to it because in his life, it seemed like others were always getting ahead of him and that he was jealous of the richer and more successful people around him. And it really surprised me at that time that he would admit to that. It surprised me even more to find that sentiment in the Bible. So this psalm was the first instance that I ever heard of in scripture of someone questioning God, admitting their doubts, and even accusing God of being unfair. It made me realize that <clears throat> we're allowed <clears throat> to be brutally honest with God, and that an honest prayer expressing our doubt actually brings us closer to God than a fake uh, prayer of praise. So Psalm 73 starts off by saying it's a psalm of Asaph. I believe all of them that we've looked at so far have been psalms of David, but this one was written by Asaph. And if you want to know more about him, you can look in the book of First Chronicles in chapter 25. Asaph was a Levite, and he was one of a trio of worship leaders that King David commissioned to prophesy and pray and give thanks to God through music. So they, these three were under the leadership of King David, under his supervision, and Asaph probably learned some of what he knew about songwriting from King David. And he's got 12 psalms in the Bible attributed to him. So let's read it. Psalm 73, it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. 
From their callous hearts comes iniquity. From their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Excuse me. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand, or by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So I want to ask, how many of you have ever heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished? It's a sarcastic way of saying that doing the right thing usually has a cost associated with it. And in this psalm, Asaph is basically saying the reverse, that no wicked deed goes unrewarded. He's lived long enough to know that people who lie and cheat and bully their way to the top often get away with it. And during his long term of service under both King David and King Solomon, Asaph Asaph saw the best and the worst of the other officials in the court. He would have seen corruption among the rich and the powerful firsthand. So the main question that is troubling Asaph is, is God really good and just? And if so, why is life so unfair? The psalm starts off with this positive declaration in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is standard Doctrine. This is what is taught throughout the first five books of the Old Testament, that if you do what's right by obeying the law and committing yourself to God, then he will be good to you and bless you. In Deuteronomy 28 to 30, we find this idea very specifically and strongly. After teaching the people of Israel all of God's laws, Moses then spells out for them the consequences of obedience versus disobedience. He says, if you obey the law, good things will happen to you. You will be blessed with healthy children and fruitful crops and deliverance from your enemies, prosperity and safety. But if you disobey God's law, God will punish you with these particular curses, disease, war, defeat, death, loss, and suffering of all kinds. And then he wraps it up by saying in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 18, 
See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So Asaph really wants to believe this. He says, surely God will bless the faithful. God doesn't break his promises. But when he looks around him, what he sees causes him to really wonder. If this is true, then why is it the wicked that seem to be prospering? And he describes them in verses 4 to 12 of this psalm. And he says they're proud, they're violent, they're malicious, they're oppressing others, but they're living a long time. They're not being destroyed, they're not even being punished. In fact, they're healthier and richer and more carefree than he is. So what's going on? Asaph was not the first and certainly not the last person to feel this way and to ask this question. We all know that at times life can seem brutally unfair. Job put it this way in Job 10, 2-3. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Many others in scripture could have said the same thing. I'll give just three examples today. Elijah versus Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings 18 and 19. She was the wife of the evil King Ahab. She was a devoted worshiper of Baal. She was gleefully and persistently killing off the Lord's prophets while she was living in luxury in the palace. No one was holding her accountable. Meanwhile, Elijah had to go off and hide in the wilderness in fear for his life and scrape by on bread and water. Second example, Paul versus Demetrius, the silversmith, in Acts chapter 19. Demetrius got wealthy and gained influence in Ephesus by selling idols of the goddess Artemis. So you would think that if God was going to punish someone, a seller of idols would probably be a prime target. And yet, it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to proclaim the gospel. He's the one who gets threatened by a mob and has to run for his life. It doesn't seem very fair. And then finally, we have Jesus versus Pontius Pilate in Mark chapter 15. The Son of God, perfect in every way. He's the one who's arrested and put on trial. While this Gentile coward seems to control all the decisions for God's people. So each of these people, Elijah, Paul, and Jesus, would have had reason to ask, what good is it to be good? Why do I even bother? It seems like I would be more successful if I just abandoned all of my principles and started looking out for myself rather than for others. If you doubt that Jesus could ever have had such a thought cross his mind, consider this. He wove exactly this idea into his story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Many of you know this parable. It's the most famous parable that Jesus told. And the difference, of course, in that story is that the wicked person, who is the younger brother of two brothers, 
who goes and squanders all of his father's wealth, he eventually repents and is forgiven. But the doubts of the so-called righteous person in that story, the older brother, are the same. Asaph says in his psalm, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. And the older brother in the parable says the same thing, just in different words. We can imagine that he had been letting his resentment simmer below the surface for a long time. Because when his terrible little brother shows up, his emotions finally just explode. Let's look at the end of this parable in Luke 15, verses 23 to 30. The father has just seen his younger son for the first time in years, and he is delighted, and he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So basically he's saying, is this what you call fair, father? He gets a party, and I got double the work while he was gone. Now we aren't told if the older brother ever changes his attitude, if he's ever able to accept his younger brother and be happy for him. But in Psalm 73, we do see a change in Asaph's attitude. In verse 15, Asaph tells us that he knew it was wrong to be so cynical towards God. But that didn't stop his doubts from bothering him. So what did he do? Usually when we have a doubt or a question about God, we do a few different things. We might ask a Christian friend or a pastor about it, talk it over. We might read a book on that particular topic that's bothering us. We might search the Bible for wisdom on that issue. But in this case, none of those things were what helped Asaph. He didn't need more study or more talk. He needed comfort directly from God. What helped him was going to the sanctuary of God and worshiping. Verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 73. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Going to the sanctuary to worship was probably the last thing that Asaph wanted to do while he was in that state of mind. He was questioning God's justice. He wasn't sure if God was good, but he went to worship anyways. I doubt he felt very excited to be there that day. I doubt he felt very much joy at first. But as he sat before God in worship, God revealed his goodness to him and helped him to see things from God's point of view. Warren Wearsby says in his commentary on the Psalms that Jehovah isn't a problem to wrestle with, but a gracious person to love and worship, especially when you're perplexed by what he's doing. God is awesome in his sanctuary, and this means his heavenly throne room, not necessarily a church sanctuary. You don't have to be in a church to experience 
God's heavenly throne room. God is awesome in his sanctuary, and when we commune with him, we see the things of this world in their right perspective. So in verse 18, we have another surely statement, this time not about God's blessings for the righteous, but about his punishments for the wicked. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. So Asaph feels reassured that they're not going to get away with anything, these wicked people that he sees around him. They will receive what they deserve in the end, even though he hasn't seen it yet. Because God is just. The story is not over, and he needs to be patient, because judgment day will come, and at that time the Lord will arise and the wicked will be despised as fantasies, as it says in verse 20. But then the even better and more comforting truth that Asaph realizes in God's presence is that it is God's very own presence that is always with the righteous and that that is their blessing. It's true that they may suffer, that they will not always have health and wealth and success, but they will always have God himself. And so verses 23 to 26 express this so beautifully. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Asaph has realized these wicked men may look like they're getting away with something. They may think they're getting away with something. And they may have all the power and the money and the fame in the world, but none of that is going to last. He realizes, I have something better, because those who do what's right and choose to follow God receive a lasting blessing that transcends our difficult circumstances, and that's God's very own presence. God holds us, he says. He guides us. He strengthens us. And he eventually shares his glory with us. So our blessing, our earthly reward, is God's presence, and that is enough. Interestingly, the father, back in the story of the prodigal son, he says the same thing to his angry older son. After he explodes, this is what the father tells him in Luke 15, verses 31 and 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. So think about that. He's saying, Two very important things here. First of all, the father, who represents God in this story. God says, you have my constant faithful presence. And that alone should be enough for us. If it isn't, then we don't really know what God's presence is. We don't realize what we've got, because maybe we haven't fully experienced it. The older brother certainly hadn't. Because God's presence means peace. God's presence means joy. God's presence means freedom. God's presence means unconditional love and forgiveness. God's presence means power. It means you are never, ever alone. God's presence is the most fulfilling and beautiful and awe-inspiring and life-giving thing that we can ever experience. And so when Asaph says, Earth has nothing I desire besides you, he really means it. We don't become faithful followers of God for material rewards or we're going to be very disappointed. God's plan 
is not to make us healthy and wealthy necessarily. God's plan is to teach us to sacrifice ourselves for others the way Jesus did. And God is worthy of our worship and our service, regardless of what we may or may not get out of it. His presence alone is worth it, Asaph says. Just to be with him is worth whatever else we have to go through to follow him. But that is not all. God is so incredibly gracious and kind to us. So the father tells his older son, not only you are always with me, but also tells him a second thing. Everything I have is yours. Not only do we get to be with God at all times, but we are going to inherit everything God has. The father, God, says to us, because you are my heir, everything I have is yours. And this is stated explicitly in Romans 8, 17, where Paul wrote, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So what exactly are we going to inherit? What does God have that he shares with us? Well, he has all of creation. Heaven and earth belong to him and everything in them. And someday at the final judgment, when we are resurrected to live forever in God's kingdom, we will own everything and the wicked will have nothing. Our fortunes will be reversed once for all. As Jesus loved to say, the first will be last and the last will be first. The wicked will lose everything that they acquired and the righteous will gain everything that they never had. So what does it matter? What does it matter then if during this little blip of time that we call our life here on earth, the wicked seem to have most of the power and the wealth and the fame and the success? Let them have it. Really, let them have it. Because unless they change their ways, it may be all that they are ever going to get. Whereas we have an incredible reward to look forward to in the next life. And that reward is going to last for billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of years. It's going to last forever. So there's no reason for us to be jealous of anyone. In fact, those who are following their own wicked ways deserve our pity and our prayers, no matter how rich or successful they are. So when we are tempted to say like Asaph that being good is not worth it, that evil people always prosper and God is not fair, this is what we need to keep in mind. We have God's presence with us right now. And even his presence within us by the Holy Spirit. And we are going to inherit everything that God has. So we can have confidence to persevere in following God. Persevere through hard times. Because we know that God will keep his promises. And that it will all be worth it in the end. We should take special note, finally, of how Asaph ends his psalm. In the last verse, he says, As for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So once Asaph found the comfort and the faith that he needed, he went out and shared it with others. He told the people that he was leading as a worship leader about what God had done for him and how he had resolved his doubts. He wrote down the whole story of his struggle in Psalm 73 to encourage others, including us. So Whatever it is that we learn from God, we are responsible to pass that along to others. 
whether that's in a casual conversation with your friend, or in a Bible study discussion, or in a written or a spoken testimony, or even on your Instagram page. We all need to be sharing what we've learned from God and encouraging others with that. So I want to pray two things for you today in closing. That you will experience God's presence in such a way that whatever doubts, whatever you're struggling with, will dissolve. And secondly, that you will be empowered to tell others about that experience. So let's pray together. God, we are so richly blessed to have your presence with us at all times. We can talk to you anytime, anywhere, in any language. You hear us, you love us, and you're with us and you're for us. And even more than that, Lord, you have promised us incredible blessings in the future. We may feel that we don't have everything we want right now, but someday in your kingdom, we will have more than we ever imagined, more than we ever dreamed possible. You will surprise us with all of the delights that you have in store for us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes focused on that reward and on serving you well while we are here on earth, not looking around at others, not comparing ourselves and what we have or don't have, not being jealous of anyone, Lord, but may we realize the incredible privilege it is to be a son or daughter of yours. We are so grateful for that, Lord. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters today who are watching this sermon. Lord, I pray that they would experience your presence in a new and fresh and fulfilling and powerful way. And that in your presence, some of their doubts and questions would fade away that you would become much more important to them than any other question they may have. And Lord, I pray that as they have that experience, that you would light a fire in them to tell others about what you have done for them, the, the wonders you have shown them, the things you have taught them in life and in scripture. Lord, would you enable us to be your witnesses the way that we are called to be in this world. May we go with your power to speak to friends and neighbors and family and strangers about who you are and what you've done, the glory that is in store for all of those who serve God. May we serve you faithfully this week, Lord. We thank you for your love and for your presence with us. Amen.